0: Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudissell, and sitting here again, talking wine, I'm with uh, Drew Voigt from Harper Wines. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. Man, Glad to be here. Yeah, we've been hanging out a little bit today. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I tried a lot of your wines last year, which is when I met you about a year ago. Yep. And, um, it was like it was the standout stuff man like well thank you very much i'm looking forward to telling you more about it i'm, I'm a really big fan of, of well you in general i mean like I, mean, I think a lot of times when we're looking for wine you know it's not only is the wine good but it's the guy that makes it or the lady that makes <laughs> it are they is it somebody i can stand behind Yeah. you know, yeah if you're a dick it can make your wine taste like it's, worse yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> go it's true it's all it's all about context right that's true right uh, aside from the wine i mean tell me a little bit about yourself because we were talking about you you knew pretty early you, what you wanted to do, so let me, tell me about yourself.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been making wine in Oregon for about tw- um, oh, 21 years. I studied winemaking in college in California, but I was I was born on a family farm in the Central Valley in California. My grandfather was a food scientist and a, and a farmer. That's cool. Um, and then, well, the family moved away, but we still have the farm. But my dad ran sugar factories. He was a chemical engineer. Um, somehow and my brother's a food scientist somehow, where sort of chemistry, kind of chemistry geek meets farmer seems to be where everybody ends up, and it's kind of applied science and agriculture, So. I always loved chemistry and biology and microbiology. Then went off to school to study something else. But after a year of what chem- did you study? Chemical engineering uh, oh, for one year. And right, then I right, right. and then I switched my major after working a harvest. I worked the harvest of 1993 at a winery in my hometown of Lodi, California. And so and we
0: are about the same age. Yeah, I'm 44. I turned 45
1: right. in, um, uh, in six days. Okay. Yep. Yep. Oh wow! Happy birthday! Yep. Thank man. you. Thank you. Yeah. Right. I'm- just barely into 43, so a couple years apart. There you go, Yeah, yeah, so I switched my major after that and I was already at UC Davis and I just changed my major and worked every harvest from then on in California till I finished school figured out at 19 or 20 that I wanted to make
0: Pinot Noir, and I wanted to make it in Oregon. That's crazy that you would have those decisions made, or that you know exactly your path that early on. Because like even just with that one year of chemical engineering that you knew that you didn't want to do. It was a Fortran computer programming class that killed me. You're fucking not kidding
1: me, man. They made me do Fortran 77, and I thought, I want to end myself. I can't do this. Seriously, Uh, (laughs) you're not fucking kidding. So when I
0: I did go to college, um, right out of the gate at 18, it only stuck for a year and a half before I dropped out entirely and went to restaurants. I did end up eventually going back and getting a journalism degree. Yeah. But I originally went to school for computer science. Yeah. And it was fucking Fortran that got yeah. me the hell out. I was, I like, was just like, I, I can't don't do want to do this forever. I can't man. do
1: this. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I always remember just really admiring what I saw my father do. Where he's got a master's degree in chemical engineering from MIT. He's one of the smartest people, I know. And uh, but every day during the during the main season, he. He put on his work boots and jeans, and he ran the sugar factory. The chemists in the lab answered to him. The production workers wow, you know, all looked to him for guidance. He's this technical mind, but he 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 ran things. He operated things, and so I knew something like that was in was in the cards for me. I just didn't know what field it was, and it became clear that chemi wasn't gonna wasn't gonna really work for me that way. And this harvest job uh, was perfect. I took a it was graveyard shift at a at a seven million case a year wow. jug wine. Okay, that's what uh, I was going to ask friend, you did A it. friend down the street, a friend of the family down the street that my parents went to church with was the head head winemaker production manager there. And it paid better than anything else I could do it at 18. So I did, I did it, and it was like the light bulb went off, and that that's was it. That's such a rarity, man. That's it's, it. And exactly. then I just never did anything else. I haven't done anything else since, and that's 26 years. So You're one, you're one of the lucky ones. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you know? and then Oregon was, I tasted some, a classmate of mine uh, worked the, the, I believe it was the inaugural harvest at King Estate. Uh, When they opened in the mid 90s, and he was a viticulture intern for them, and he came back with a bunch of Oregon wines, and we did a student tasting in uh, must have been 1995, and those notes actually stand up in my cellar, really, in my basement where my cellar is. You know, my wines are. I've got the tasting notes from that my first tasting notebook. Now there are dozens, but that was the first one. Open to that page uh, because my notes on that I still I go back and reread them. They were '92 and '93, maybe '94 vintage wines um, from the Willamette Valley, and some wineries that are around still, like El Cove. Uh, sure. And yeah. Others that are others that aren't around anymore, like Veritas, and a few others that are gone. But the my notes on this, I was clearly enthused about these wines. I didn't understand Pinot Noir. I didn't know it, and uh, that led to a couple of road trips that led to starting to look for work and. That's it, and I, so I moved there in ninety
0: eight. Oh wow! So it was a very short time yeah. between college moved there in and, like, going to and worked,
1: and then had three jobs over the years as an assistant winemaker and then an associate winemaker, and then a head winemaker.
0: So where were you working when you before you had your own
1: place? Uh, my last full-time job was I was the winemaker at a uh, project called Shea Wine Cellars. So Shea is a really famous, larger vineyard yeah, sure. that sells to a couple of dozen really high-end producers. It's in the Yammel-Carlton district. Uh, they have their own estate winery um, that we uh, kept about a quarter of the fruit, about 6,000 cases of high-end Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. It's a, one, it's a one-man it's one show if you're the winemaker there. In, uh, so I did that for four, a little over four years and started my label there. And per, prior to that, and actually contingent at the same time, uh, continuous with that, I was uh, one of the winemakers at Domaine Serene. I was the uh, associate winemaker and then the consulting winemaker. Beautiful spot. For there. So yeah. The whole, all the country larger, out there. It's a larger It's, it's place, completely
0: so. beautiful. I mean, yeah. like Oregon in general, Like, and I've been particularly enamored with uh, Pacific Northwestern wines for several years now um, because it's kind of this weird, and, and it, I don't want to put words in or, or thoughts into your head, because I, mean, I, I want to ask your opinion on it, but uh, to me, like the wines of the Pacific Northwest kind of tie in what I like about old world wines with what I like about new world wines. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, and those are big generalities, of course, you know, sure. like it's like, I, I don't refuse to drink California wine and I don't refuse to drink anything but French wine or anything. But, you know, it's, um, you know, I feel like, you know, there was a period of time there where there was particular wine writer that, that influenced very heavily the way California wine was being made. And um, yeah. and that, to me, was kind of a big turnoff, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, they were just really fruity and really alcoholic and just a little bit too much in your face. And you missed some of that. Um, I, again, I always try to hammer home the, to our listeners uh, this idea of terroir, because I think it's one of the more confusing words for Americans. Oh, sure. you know, Like, I mean, you're you're an American. You know this. I mean, it's a little more ingrained in you after 20-some, 20 26 yeah. years of making wine. But, you know, that kind of sense of place that you get out of the land. And I felt like some of that was being lost a little bit. But the first time I tried uh, uh, an, an Oregon Pinot, it was like, holy shit, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. This no, is I'm,
0: what it's about. We,
1: we straddle the, or we, we split the distance nicely between the kind of wines that we just naturally uh i won't say easily produced because it's not easy to make wine in oregon but but that we naturally produce wines that seem to split the difference between um you know some of the some of the austerity and earthy tones that you know that that burgundy does very well um and some of the more fruit driven uh uh, wines that would come from a warmer climate and we seem to be somewhere in the middle of that which is i think suits where a lot of people are looking for now they want that elegance but they want a sense of 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 some bright fruit and uh, that's where we naturally find we have savory tones and spice tones and earthy tones as a natural uh, product of our climate. Um, and uh, and 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 the one thing that's worth pointing out is is that Oregon's on the same basic latitude, you know, as where as where as Burgundy, and we're looking really? at the same. We're on the forty fifth parallel, and I'm always start to look around fascinated the
0: world, by the latitudes because I don't make I don't much pay attention to it. You it know, matters until...
1: more than I think a lot of people might think because. It's going to get geeky. Uh, no, that's yeah, what go happens. for it, man. It's day length. Day length is driven by your position on the on the globe, and plants respond to day length in many ways more than they respond to, to soil temperature or or to, to warmth. They they. You know, the sure, I'm sure will, your
0: cannabis growing neighbors uh, are very uh, well aware of quite that. quite a bit of that as well. <laughs> yes, um, that's true. Uh, but you know, day length
1: is a critical factor, and we have that very similar day length that the 45th parallel goes right through the. Upper um, middle portion of the Willamette Valley, and that same line is, you know, is is is, is where you find, uh, you know, the Pinot Noir being grown in France. It's the, as a, as an interesting contrast. The same line goes through Minneapolis. Uh, really? Yeah. So it tells you that's pretty far north. And in a not a lot climate, of amazing
0: Pinot coming not from a Minneapolis. Lot. <laughs> Bill, usually
1: at the 45th parallel, halfway between the equator and the pole. Usually, it's a pretty hard climate. It's usually a hard winter um, and a short growing season, and Pinot Noir needs a mild winter and a long growing season, uh, relatively speaking. Gotta be frost free from April or May uh, in the northern hemisphere all the way until September, October, maybe more. Um, That's a tall order. Uh, Europe has it because they're sort of artificially warm with the with the, the Gulf, Gulf stream. stream and the Pacific Northwest has it because we've got the Pacific Ocean. Right. You know 30 40 miles to the west of it. Yeah, I think people us. forget
0: about that and that's one of the reasons why I always am uh, entertained by looking at the, at the latitudes between the United States and Europe because it is quite different because uh, you know Spain's at approximately the same latitudes like New York City and mm-hmm. winter in Spain's quite different than the winter in, in New York City. And again because of that jet stream and uh, in fact I did a whole like project in college when I was still studying biology and um, I finished my, pro- my presentation it took about an hour and a half and somebody said uh, so did you just like take is this like the cliff notes version of like the day after tomorrow <laughs> and I was like, "What's that?" And they're like, the movie? "The movie." And I went yeah. home and I watched it the following day. I'm like, "Motherfucker, it yeah. looks like I just totally lifted my whole project yeah. in this film." But I mean, it's—I mean, it is legit because that, that the warm air coming up from that direction, you know, I mean, yep. it could change Europe quite dramatically. Yeah. And um, and and you know, when you look at a map of the United States, I mean, Washington and Oregon are, are quite far north. I mean, you're, you're very right near Canada, but I mean the. Climate is very mild. I mean, the best mushrooms come from there. Yep. Weed, you know. Yep. Grapes. I mean, Pinot. Not only that, but I mean, you know, a very sensitive grape, like you said.
1: Yeah. People picture the U.S. as having. I mean, we don't realize how north the Pacific Northwest is. That Portland, Oregon, is farther north than Portland, Maine. We oh, don't. Wow. We don't think about it that way, but it right. is. And, uh, right. and so that 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 tells you something. Uh, that it, that we have this we have this mild, um, you know, kind of ocean mitigated uh, uh, climate, and the. Some, you know, Pinot Noir has kind of always been di- kind of thought of as something that, that doesn't succeed in very many places. And you start thinking about its tendency towards liking this northerly latitude or, or southerly, the, you know, the, the forty fifth parallel south, Central Otago in New Zealand, Tasmania, the sure. Mornington Peninsula. Emerging places in Chile and Argentina, um, uh, you know, have the same kinds of advantages, just on the opposite, you know, side of the uh, six months off. But why Pinot Noir doesn't work in so many places is it wants something that it it. it it wants something that's really niche. It wants mild, but but northerly or right. extremes, and these places are rare. Um, but we we have one of them, and I'm and I'm delighted. That's where I've spent a long time. So. That's
0: real wild, man. I mean, uh, so you said you started, you know, making wine straight out of college, or at least uh, you know working with wineries, and yeah. so uh, it, c- it comes to mind. And uh, you know, I fucking hate to mention it. I'm sure everybody does, but. I mean, you, so you were making wine straight through the like sideways movie, like oh, pinot yeah. craze. Oh, yeah, yeah. When, like, I mean, but I mean, that movie, it cuts both ways, though. You know, like everybody went out and wanted their $20 bottle of pinot and yeah. good luck. But um, yeah. finding a good one anyhow. But like on the other side of that coin, people realized how much work goes into growing that grape.
1: Absolutely. I wish I'd had my own label when that was happening because pinot <laughs> right. sales ro- skyrocketed. I started it a few years after that, um, but I was you know I was making wine for others at that time, and uh, it was it was a, it was quite a phenomenon, and it never. I mean, it 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 lasted. I mean, people were turned on to the to the idea of of pinot noir as a something to be to be sought out and and something that was really special, and I think they. They've, they've stayed with that. Uh, I think, and as far as I know, I've been told, Merlot sales have never recovered. Uh, so, um, yeah, so it was, it was an interesting phenomenon, even though the, that, obviously, story wasn't centered in our region. Right. There actually was a sequel that was. Uh, there was a it, sequel to sideways? Yeah, a, a, a novel, not a, uh, oh, okay, a, okay. Not, not a movie. Um, and the novel sequel was set in the Willamette Valley, interestingly. And a curious thing actually featured my first vintage, really. Uh, as a, uh, they built, he built a scene around it. The, the the author Rex Pickett got a bunch of samples of wines. I only met him once and never ever really talked to him much. But he solicited a bunch of samples through a, somebody that I knew, just to taste with his tasting group in Los Angeles and to use as ba- as you know sort of and it part of the backdrop uh, to give it some you know, context, and he built a, a, a fictional scene around uh, drinking a barrel sample, which he actually did taste a barrel sample of my first vintage of my Strandline Pinot Noir. That's it interesting, wasn't made man. into a movie, that would have been really cool. That would have been real a funny. Movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, that
0: didn't happen. I don't know if anybody actually read the book. Like I said, um, it, did, it did crank up a lot of uh, interest in it, but, you know, the, I, I do remember still, like, you know, Paul Giamatti, which who doesn't love Paul Giamatti? Yeah. But you know, um, you know, going on and on about why he respects the grape because it's it's a son of a bitch to grow. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's you know? very very
1: finicky. It's thin skinned. Um, it's prone to prone to disease. Uh, it's it, it, it grows very, uh, kind of very floppy, and the vineyard requires a lot of, of manual work to to keep it tucked between wires and to do the vertical shoot positioning that we do in a modern context. It 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 wants to split. It wants to rot. It wants to. Um, it, it wants it, it can fail to ripen and it only really does great work in a place where you grow it on the knife edge of viability um, and if you grow it in a place where the sun shines for four weeks or six weeks after the end of harvest the sea, and you don't get the the tension and the and the, and the the, the the shape of Pinot Noir that really matters it 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 doesn't it just doesn 't work like that so it wants to be in a place where it wants to almost fail
0: Your education was in California obviously coming out of school and I'm just wondering, because to me, it's, it's just amazing that you can go study viniculture and viticulture in California as a degree, because we, mm-hmm. in Indiana, don't have that opportunity, right? Hell, we don't Actually, even get I know a winemaker went to Purdue. There's an um, Oregon winemaker did go to I Purdue. Guess <laughs> was, I guess that it was, <laughs> that was true. True, But, yeah, but I mean, no, it's
1: certainly not the same Agriculture, not the same right. Yeah, scale, I mean, we don't have
0: right. the access to the vineyards. You know, um, if sure. you wanted to do an internship, you would have to travel. But, you, you know, you're at your... Uh, growing and making wine in a different area from where you got your education. So I'm kind of wondering, if it is it kind of the same deal as a lot of jobs where like you can only learn so much in school, but really it's just kind of like finding out what the hell doesn't work. You know, we were just um, on our last episode, we were um, talking about another winemaker's first batch and all the cork being bad and 75% of it being like yeah. gone. Yeah, <laughs> You know, and I, I can only presume those are just like on the job training. What you learn in a traditional winemaking
1: educational background is a lot of fundamentals. You learn biochemistry and microbiology. You learn about sanitation, organic chemistry, and there are very specific wine related uh, and vineyard related coursework, but you're learning about vine physiology and yeast um, yeast metabolism and things like that that are really the underpinnings of it. And mm-hmm. and I think like a lot of what amount you know a classic science education is a way of thinking not necessarily sure. the knowledge itself yeah, right. but a way of approaching a, a problem and um, and, you know, postulating solutions for, for things and testing evidence and those sorts of things. And those things serve anybody well, and that's why a, a good education is a good education, even sure. if you don't work in the field you were trained. Right. So specific- As most of us
0: don't. Yeah, well, that's why don't. I said exactly. you're a rarity, man. Yep. And we know. didn't
1: study specific grape varieties in any meaningful way other than to identify them in the field, understand mm-hmm. how to tell the difference between Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Pinot Noir and Zinfandel in the field. It's called ampelography, identification, <laughs> you learned that. But the specific nuances are, they're too specific to a region. You can't do it. So you learn how to to think and how to approach things and how to to run some equipment and lab work and interpreting data. And then you go to your region and you
0: specialize. I guess that's what I was getting at is because it's like the regionality of it is like, how much can you really teach? But you've got to get out there, grow the fruit and be like, oh, Oh, so that's what it
1: does. That's right. In, and, in your own local conditions. And even within the Willamette Valley, the difference between making wine in the Dundee Hills versus Yamal Carlton versus Ribbon Ridge or the Eolamity Hills is, is different. I, I actually, I run a custom winemaking business as well as making my own oh, label. Really? So I'm involved in about 17 different projects as a winemaker. Jesus, man. Uh, some that we make in our facility with my with my uh, full-time team of assistant winemaker and cellar master that help me run my business. And then I consult and for other wineries in their own facilities with their own staff. So, I work with the kind of just about every iteration of, of microclimate and soil and sub region within the Willamette Valley, and actually one project in southern Oregon as well. But every region is different, and you have to learn each region and, and the soil and the microclimate and the, and the clonal diversity and all that kind it's of every time it's you, fresh. It's
0: interesting that you're doing that work. I mean, I, I w- a couple years ago, I hung out uh, in Frascati with a gentleman named uh, Lorenzo Costatini. Mm-hmm. They were freaking out because they'd only had two hard freezes that winter mm-hmm. in Frascati. And, and he's kind of pushing. There's like this total like dynamic in Frascati because it's just generally been crappy, you know, wine that you sell for you know four bucks, and, yeah. uh, you know, with the uh, Alaspina, right, and you with know, yeah. the big bulb of wine. But he and a handful of like winemakers are really trying really hard to. Up the uh, the quality and, and don't worry about the quantity so much. Where yeah, it, it was like a split between him him and his uncle. Yeah, like they weren't even speaking to each other. Their vineyards are right next to each wow. other, separated by our wire fence. But his uncle's like, no, 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 we don't need that shit. We just we'll sell what we make to Rome, and we'll make our you know it's what we always do. And he's like, no, 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 we we have the land, we can, we have the terrain. Let's do this better. Yeah, there's no reason to not do that. But while I was with him in his vineyard, he was doing exactly what you just said you're doing. Like he was consulting with every other winemaker and he wasn't necessarily doing it as a a job but every his phone was blowing up because they were like, well you're the guy that's pushing us to do this, so how how do we do this thing? Because yeah. like the, the we're getting buds too early. It's yeah. two weeks too early. What do we do? You know, and so we ended up kind of parting ways and having lunch with his wife and him a little bit later in the day. Instead, yeah. and so I mean that, that's got to keep you insanely busy. There's a, I'm I'm, a, I'm very busy. Yes, design, <laughs> yeah. exactly. I handle the sales of my own
1: brand, the Harper Void brand, uh, nationally as well as as you know making the decisions I need to on my own wines and my clients' wines back home. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean collaboration is a big part of what what I think makes you know it's really. It, the feeling people get when they come to Oregon um, is they see this very collaborative environment of people that are really trying to trying to perfect the breed. Uh, we're trying to advance together. And, uh, you know, rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. And so there's a lot of information sharing. There's a lot of, of openness. And I've got a handful of, of winemakers that I've been friends with for... You know, in some cases, the better part of two decades. Who I you don't reach always out. see that around the world. No, I, mean, I don't know that every region does that. I don't no, know that Oregon really is, is people that come often remark at how collaborative it appears to be, and we just don't see our. I don't, and I think a lot of my peers that are like-minded, we don't see our, our the other wineries in the region as our competition but merely as you know our consumers don't buy only one brand of, of wine right, they, of don't, course. they don't there's no brand loyal, there's brands people like but people don't typically buy one wine and yeah. continue to drink it if you like like Pino, Budweiser you're like I only drink Budweiser yeah right, or exactly. even maybe a spirits thing and people might drink consistently with that but but in sure. a lot of cases people will say no I like a category right and then I want to buy from a range for depending on should we with Pinot Noir what am I eating uh what am yeah. I pairing it with in right. what context over what aging period of time and and so you don't really get a feeling that we, we we just don't view it that way. So we we're friends and we collaborate uh, as a, as a group, and and we're qu- I think quick to ask questions and share and taste each other's wines and. Um, yeah, I, 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 that, the spirit of that, which is just very, Oregon's a very friendly place anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> if yeah. If you ever visit, you, people walk down the street and people will look you in the eye and say hi and you think, do I, do some, do I, do I know that person? No, you and don't. I
0: like the Midwest, man. We're you just, don't. we're like that too. So like, yeah. you know, like yeah. we always hear like, why do you apologize for everything? And yeah. You know, right. You're just friendly. Yeah. Right. And it we're happens. Very it. Friendly I do. Right I really back. like Oregon for that particular reason. Yeah. In fact, my, uh, well, I believe two now, two of my, um, uh, former employees, one's now a business partner had actually uh, been to Pinot camp uh, sure. and when i heard about the concept of this cuz i was like what's Pinot camp like i mean what is this like it's you're being brought out by you know by whom and uh, and and what happens and, and you know what they're just going to you know preach to you about they essentially become a brand ambassador right That's is that what they're trying to do and he said um, no, all all of the wineries get together, and you know if they can participate, they do. And yeah. you know you have to be sponsored, I guess. But like, you know, there's like a week long, and you travel and you know mm-hmm. all the things. Like, I mean, you know, Pinot Camp more than I do. Um, I don't.
1: Yeah, we don't do it for Harper Void, My brand's small enough that it doesn't make right, sense for us. Right. but I've done it for employers in the past, and I yeah, know the and, event very and, well.
0: And he was, think, you know, traveling around every day, was at a different place, and you mm-hmm. get to talk with gentlemen like yourself, and uh, or ladies like yourself. Well, not like yourself. Um, and learn about the craft of it, and to oh, yeah. me that blew my mind because like, <clears throat> you don't hear about the Burgundy winemaking association. <laughs> hey, let's bring everybody over, and we'll do tours, and we'll like teach everybody how we do things. It's, it's yeah, global. it seems to be a, a, a some of
1: the spirit of that seems to be uniquely Oregon, and that, and that's an event that's very focused on the trade. So that's right. that's, that's going to be buyers and reps and and you know in sommeliers and things like that. And then well, I actually just, just completed an event just the other day um, that we have a thing called the International Pinot Noir Celebration IPNC where producers from all around the world Burgundy, New Zealand, Australia, Chile, Argentina, Oregon, uh, everywhere. Uh, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, come and showcase their wines for consumers. And it's always oh, wow. in McMinnville, Oregon, where I live and where my winery is located. And I just did it. We, I literally had to leave the event early to get on a plane to connect to get to Columbus yesterday for, for sales stuff. But it's this amazing deep dive into Pinot Noir from around the world. And you know, in uh, you know, bus tours to and doing lunches and dinners and looking at soil profiles and going deep into, into kind of understanding this grape. That once you get captivated by Pinot Noir, it really can get a hold on you. It's a thing that you never stop learning about. And it's not my expression, but I've heard people say sort of an all roads lead to Pinot kind of a thing. It's a place where people get fascinated by it um, well, like, and and the terroir expression, the 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 the, uh, the personality that a site. Uh, can lend to this grape. You grow it in slightly different conditions, and you have this totally different creature that you could never make from anywhere else. And they, really, that's what terroir really is, is, yeah. is that tremendous sense of personality. Not every site has it. Um, um, different grapes express it to different degrees, but Pinot Noir and a few others, Riesling and a few others, often get, get <laughs> brought up in the, in the same... I laugh
0: because Riesling's like, yeah, that, that's... It's one of my those... My cellar, in fact, a couple weeks ago, I had some guests over, and they... Uh, I asked if they could, you know, wanted a bottle of wine, yep. and they they said absolutely. And I said, what would you like? And they're like, well, you know, what do you have that's red? And I went down to the cellar and I said. Nothing. I, yeah. I, I do you want Riesling yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that's mostly what's there. There's a lot of Riesling. I because love Riesling because it is. It's Can really I, I expressive bit, yeah. and Pinot I mean, too. You know, yep. I mean, those are like, to me, the most expressive grapes out there, and that's yes. what I'm always looking for. Like, what tells me the story in the glass? Like, that's right. You know, I, it, and it's almost like a mystery. I got to try to figure out who the hell you are without meeting you, mm-hmm. right? Like without seeing the picture. It's like when you listen to like a radio show or a podcast. Yeah, you kind of get an image in your head of what you look like, what kind of person you are. Sure. I've I've always said that I. I not that I've always said this, it's a, it's a common uh, thought, but um, I mean, you can taste the winemaker in the glass. You can tell what kind of person they are. I mean, if they're a big, bold, kind of like, when they're the guy that goes to the bar and you know that they're in the bar because they make their presence known, <laughs> like you you can taste that through their wines, you know, and they might sure. have this big, bold smack you in the face Merlot or something, but, yeah. or you can, you know, kind of the more, like, hanging back and and, and watching everything happen sure. guys. And, and, like, to me, nope. that's yeah, that's a, a very important part of terroir that gets uh, skipped over. I think when you, everybody talks about the soils, you know, the climate, the air, the temperature, mm-hmm. and, and all that, but you, the hands literally and, and, and figuratively, of, yeah. of the winemaker. The winemaker,
1: the vineyard manager, um, sometimes it's one and the same. Sometimes right, it's different people. Yeah, those absolutely. Those are all, those are, we all have those. We make thousands of little decisions that influence what is effectively this core personality of a site. Um, but we're definitely, we have a, a very active role in it. Wine does not make itself. Um, sure. I mean, we say it's made in the vineyard as kind of shorthand, meaning that we need to grow great grapes to make great wine, and we need to, to listen to and understand what the vineyard is telling us that it wants to be. I mean, it sounds trite to describe it in such a kind of a, kind of a, a, a kind of a, a, that sort of a way, but it really does. If you, if you know what to listen for and you know what to pay attention to and taste and smell, the the, the vineyard is, is telling you something. It, it's telling you it, it, it wants to be picked earlier or later. It wants to, to, uh, to have more or less whole cluster fermentation or spontaneous ferments to express this, this personality that's, that's in there. And and that's why I'm, almost all the wines I make are single vineyard wines and it's for a reason. I'm fascinated by that characteristic, whether it's I mean Pinot Blanc, Riesling, or Pinot Noir, the three varieties I make, they're almost all single vineyard wines and and because I, I'm captivated by that
0: that expression. Yeah. I mean, that, it's that that, and that's level. where I was, I guess, making my point between like the kind of old world, you really see that a lot more because there's thousands of years of history. Yes. And sure. you know, the families get very, very protective of like this is our house style. And yeah. you know, we're so new. Um, as far as being, you know, appreciated as a winemaking oh, yeah. region Oregon country. only starts in
1: 1965 That's the first two commercial vineyards after Prohibition There's a pre-Prohibition industry that vanishes during Prohibition It's gone and there's no attempts to break to begin anything in the Willamette Valley until 65 and then it's there's subsequent waves of, of things And now we're you know more than you know, we're, we're closing in on a half a century and and that's and that's it uh, a little more than that, and uh, and and that's not a lot of time. Yeah, uh, with many vineyards being planted only in the last. Ten or twenty years, right? Yeah, Um, you know, it's it's. uh, Our parents were like
0: adults, you know, like already before it was really
1: taken seriously. I mean, yeah, I I was born in 1974, and the vineyard there were only nine-year-old vineyards uh, in Oregon when I was born, and uh, and so we're really still, and and the the vast majority of the expansion in acreage in Oregon has been recent, very recent, Um, and so and there's now 750 or 800 wineries. When I moved there, it was something like 150 or 200, and that was. just over 20 years ago. So yeah, we're just beginning to scratch the surface on really, we don't even really know where the, I mean, the, some of the best sites in the Willamette Valley probably aren't even planted yet. Wow. Um, they're in Christmas trees or, or, sure. or hazelnuts or something like that. And, and to some degree with Harper Voigt and with my client work as well, we're looking out, sometimes outside of the delineated sub-Appalachians. We have these seven sub-regions of the Willamette Valley um, that are that have been you know, these sub AVAs: Dundee Hills, Yama Carlton, Ribbon Ridge, etc. Mm-hmm. There's seven of them. There are new ones in the pipeline, there are regions. That's what
0: that I say, there's there's constantly, they're changing, I mean, because it is young. Like, yes. You see these new AVAs popping up and, and, yep. and sub sub areas, and, and it's really interesting that it's like, it's we're watching it happen now. It's happening right now. In a couple right. of hundred years from yep. now. You and know. we're
1: interacting with it, we're a part of that discovery, you know, the winemaking and then taking these wines to consumers and getting consumer reactions, and, and we're learning these things and introducing, we're, just, we're coming to understand the Willamette Valley in terms
0: of its relationship with... With Pinot Noir, so it's great. We've talked a lot about, like, kind of the Willamette Valley in general and Oregon winemaking in general, but we haven't talked about as much about what what you do. Uh, So, Harper Voigt is your label. That's my brand. Well, your name's Drew, so where's the Harper come from? It's my middle name. Okay, that's my middle name. So, my name is
1: Andrew, technically, although no one calls me that Drew, and then Harper Voigt. Harper's a a traditional family middle name uh, that used to be a surname on my mom's side of the family. Okay. uh, Cool. uh, Middle name, I Felt weird about when I was a kid because it was different. Sure, right. Uh, yeah, I'm, all I'm of us I always feel weird it. about our names. I'm, yeah, I'm glad I have it now because it's, it's it's kind of a cool, uh, kind of a distinctive. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of kids now with Harper as a name, but no, it's just my middle name. Yeah, so, it, it didn't make. So a I comeback, just put my right? middle and last name on the on the bottle, and because uh, it's just it's just me. I mean, it's my it's my project. And so, how many people do you have working work. with you? I have two full time. I've got two full time people: wow. an assistant winemaker and a cellar master. Um, uh, so are, are you growing f- as well? You, are you in the vineyards as well, or yeah. is, are you sourcing your? I'm food? leasing some. I'm leasing a few vineyard sites. I've got three small sites that I lease that we control the farming on ourselves. So I mean, okay. we have to have crews that go in and do the work, and, sure. and then we direct the farming on, this, on the sites that we buy on long term contracts. But, um, but that's all my stuff is effectively either leased or, or contracted. Uh, I don't own anything. I lease my building. Sure. I lease my tasting space. Uh, I, 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 I own a 2013 Mazda three and a, <laughs> right. and a, you know, and some. So everything else is leased. <laughs> everything else is leased. So we do control the farming um, in a lot of places and, and have worked with the same vineyard sites uh, since starting the brand in many cases. Um, so that, that, that component is key. You have to have some control over how the grapes are grown, um, in order to really optimize the quality, make the best certainly. Wines you can.
0: I mean, especially from vintage to vintage, because you, yeah. you know you can only control so many variables. That's right. That's right. And so, and those decisions need to be the
1: winemaker's decisions as far as yield. Um, you know, deciding how much crop you're going to leave on the vine, the choices you're going to make about how you're going to grow. You're going to grow based on best case scenarios. Our seasons don't always end beautifully. They they can get rainy. They can be wet towards the end. There can be challenges towards the end of uh, we a couple times a decade at a minimum. We have what we generally refer to as challenging years. Uh, we don't have good or bad years, we have years with greater or lesser challenges and then our job is to rise to that. But the decisions we make in June, July and August about how we grow grapes affect what we can handle in September, October or sometimes in colder years into November uh, when when the situations get more difficult. How, how resilient are those vines gonna be? How much rain, how much uh, de- you know, dehydrating conditions under warm windy conditions how much how much of these kind of things can can affect us what how, how, how can we hang through that um, so those decisions need to be the winemakers because you need to assume that element of of risk, and so even the places where I buy on contract, we're we're putting those inputs in. It's very collaborative, but in the end, uh, you know, you've got to make those decisions for yourself.
0: So, how many vintages do you have now at, at Harper Voigt? Well, we know the first we one was written about. We know? started, <laughs> yes, sort of, right? Exactly.
1: Um, yeah, it was uh, 2000, 2009 was when I began the label. Okay. Uh, so, and then I was I had my full-time job as a winemaker for for Shea at the time, and did three three vintages of my wine on the side while I was there before sure. exiting to kind of Expand the production Harper Void, and then to take on this client work. So which had always been my, about had a, much smaller so production. Ten, yeah, yeah, right. No, we were we were 200 cases to start with. Oh wow. We're only between 12 and 1400 now, and not, and not growing anymore. I've I've maxed out the growth of what I want to make under my own label. It's a uh, project's big enough for me to manage all of it. Um, any larger, and and I feel like it would I'd lose the I can wrap my arms around the project entirely right now, and I like that. So, but the consulting and and custom winemaking is something I I really enjoy. So, so yeah, ten ten years of of Harper Voigt, um, and uh, and and we've I guess we've grown a bit
0: there, but on on a, on a small base. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's. Like I said, you made quite an impression with us last year. Oh, and uh, it's interesting that you're working with all these other wineries as well. Because and you're they, like happy with the size and stay happy. Yes, I got hungry and I was like, I got bored. I'm like, I want to do more stuff. And like, oh my God, it's yeah. too much on my plate right now. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, too yeah. many people. Yeah, three, four, five people. Perfect. Yes, Contract exactly. Contract the rest of the people out in the fields.
1: I get. <laughs> I just. I, I love bringing new projects to to being a part of. You know. The, the clients that I make wine for—they, it's their vision. In many cases, in most cases, it's their own vineyards. Whether we're brought in for vineyard development, or they've already planted, both both situations happen. But um, we're then the solution. They've got vision. They've got a um, you know a dream to to make some great wine and to bring a this vision to, to market. And we're the the team that helps them go from vine to bottle and pull off that piece of it. And then they take their wines to market. And and so over the years, we've incubated quite a lot of really exciting. Uh, little brands, most of which sell direct to consumer back in Oregon, but I'm—they're—they I'm no, I, they're, they're, they make me really proud. I see see there what what they're able to accomplish with our help,
0: um, and uh, and and bring some amazing wines. So on your website you have, uh, maybe it's on your label. I didn't pay that much attention to the label as I've been drinking it, but um, it says obsessively crafted. Uh, obsessively and, and crafted wines. And, yes. I, mean, I mean, that's not obvious at this point, you know, but
1: it—that's uh, it, well, actually a uh, the it's in my signature line I'm on our emails as well. And it's a, the slogan of the winery. It was, uh, it was actually coined by my ex-wife. Um, <laughs> That's why uh, right uh, she's the ex. because yeah, oh, She, was, she <laughs> right. came up with it very years ago and, uh, and she, I joke about it she, she meant it not as a synonym for passionate, but as right, uh, right. there may or may not be a diagnosis in a file somewhere with the word <laughs> obsessive in it. Let's just put it that way. So yes, I take it very seriously. I mean, we try to, we try to have a lot of fun with it. Um, but, uh, but no, it's a, a, I definitely have a mind that works that way and, and we chose that slogan very carefully and she came up with that and I thought that that fits that's it, very honest and it fits right it, well, I think it is honest yeah
0: especially with the limited production and, and like being satisfied with that production because like you said you, it allows you to put your fingers on everything
1: absolutely absolutely she'll be delighted to hear that I brought her up on the podcast is coming up with, <laughs> that, with that which I'm sure she will listen to so um, but yeah I no, that's that, that 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 really is the way we see it, is these little details matter and we want to uh, we we really obsess over these tiny nuances in you know, a small uh, small fermenters, small lots, um, working with vineyards that we really uh, want to focus a lot of attention on, and and make wines that are really distinctive. And it takes a certain
0: kind of obsessive uh, approach to things to really bring that out. Uh, so we've talked a lot about Pinot, mm-hmm. um, but you know we I think we at least have to uh, give a little side note to Riesling because again it's, it's one of my one of my mm-hmm. favorite uh, varietals, and so I mean. Um, how much are you working with Riesling?
1: Uh, I only make a small amount of Riesling for myself, uh, for my own label. And it we actually don't, it's not distributed in this market. I sell most of it direct to consumer. Yeah, um, I've never had it. Yeah, we've never brought it to, 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 to this market. We only make about 70 or 80 cases of it a year. Oh, wow. It comes from the oldest Riesling vines in our part of the of the Willamette Valley <laughs> in Yammo County. They were planted in 1970, so that's not old by the in a global sense, but it's old the in the Oregon sense. Say, right. Right. In the, at least it was since 65 is the beginning of the Willamette Valley's industry. Uh, this 1970s stuff is kind of fun, but it comes from a vineyard called Marsh. Um, looks like Maresh, but the family pronounces it Marsh. And I get that and I make a Riesling that, that, I'm, that I, I love making. I make some for clients, um, but that's it. I, I love Riesling, it can be a, it can be a tricky thing to sell in in the American wine Certainly. marketplace because many consumers associate Riesling with wines that are very very sweet and and often in, not perceived as being serious or complex. It's a it's a it's gross the,
0: misunderstanding. I, I always call it the the blue bottle syndrome, right? Yes. Like it's the, the the grocery store or supermarket. You know, yeah, blue Nun really did a number on
1: us 40 yeah. years ago, and yeah. and it's still. I, I can meet consumers in their 30s that make reference to milk and and yeah. blue nun, and they're not old enough to know that the cultural memory is wrong is long. So, and and it's an incorrect way of seeing it, but it's changing. Um, but I make a very small amount of reasoning. My primary white is Pinot Blanc, uh, okay. which I I'm yeah. a, I'm and
0: a it's massive delicious admirer. Gold. I make
1: several styles of it. We make sparkling wine and a few still wine styles out of it, and it's a grape that. Its origins are actually in Burgundy. Um, It's part of the family, uh, the Pinot family in general, be it Gris Blanc or Noir, is one of the parents of Chardonnay. And Chardonnay is a relatively younger grape compared to Pinot Blanc. So it used to be a very important grape in Burgundy, less so today, but if you, um, and Champagne for that matter, if you, as it turns out, or my contention would be, if you treat it (laughs) We approach the grape through and look at it through that lens. Barrel fermentation, lees aging, in some cases malolactic, in some cases not, um, tirage bottling for sparkling wines. It was a question I sort of asked years ago, is do we see that Burgundian heritage, not the Alsatian transplant that Pinot Blanc became later, but the Burgundian origin grape? It, it definitely is. Um, What do we do? We do we see that personality, those Burgundian, you know, mineral tones, and that kind of balance. And I think the wines we're making show the answers. Yes, uh, it it does have that depth, and it can do things that are very, very similar to what Chardonnay does in a cool climate region. Absolutely. And so that's what I I do make Chardonnay for clients, and I respect and love that grape. But in my own lineup, Pinot Blanc is. I'm trying to make a point that I think we, I think we have a noble grape in Pinot Blanc that is a forgotten noble grape of the Mm -hmm. world, um, that is, is is. only approached with a lot of reverence in a few places in the world and i and oregon is there's not a lot in the ground but there's a few of us doing that it's made very seriously in places in some places in northern italy and in germany and austria um, and well that uh,
0: reverence i think you're driving my point home about yeah. the the being able to taste the the hand of the winemaker in the in the glass like you can tell from hearing your passion about it like and tasting it like, yeah, I think I, I think I know what this true guy's all about now. Yeah. You know? yeah, like, yeah. You know? I'm glad
1: I'm glad the wines certainly present that way. I mean, it's it's a it's a deeply, you know, it's two-thirds of my name on the label and all and all of my effort and and work and and drive and passion is what goes into that stuff. I I I live for this. Um, so you've
0: got limited um, production, you know, so how do our listeners out there hunt you down? I mean, at least uh, online, they can find your website, but uh, there isn't uh, quite as much information as we've just divulged here. Sure, uh, not There's no, nothing about. the website's about. a little
1: bare bones. We're redoing it now, thankfully. But it doesn't. Yeah, but it's harpervoit.com, which is. H a r p e r and then the Voit spelled just V o i t, uh, rather than yeah, the not, G not like people Boyd. had, <laughs> not like that. No G's, no H's, exactly. Um, so just V o i t. But uh, yeah, that's you can you can you can learn about the wines. You can certainly order them in places where we can ship the wines. You can always yeah. That was
0: my next question. We so take appointments as well for anybody
1: stuff. that's visiting the Willamette Valley. We have a we have a tasting space by appointment, which. Is actually the seated tastings are typically with me. And you're not
0: um, horribly far outside of Portland, so I I mean, like it's it's a thirty-five pretty, miles yeah, from Portland, less like, than an hour. So it yeah. takes about a half hour. That's I wine think.
1: country is so close. That's you what you blew me away the it.
0: first time I went to Portland was to realize uh, was realizing how close everything was. It's right um, there. It's right yeah. there. Just one kind of you're one. You're in
1: uh, McMinnville, right? McMinnville is where yeah, where, where where we're located that's exactly. Right, we're in Yamhill County, and that you can when there's not traffic, you can get from downtown Portland to McMinnville in under an hour. So it's it's right there, but it's a beautiful little wine country town. So we've. We take appointments there. Get the website, and then you will find our wines in about 15 markets around the country where we're partnered with some amazing distributors, um, including in, here in your in your own home area. We've That's got right. to work with the the amazing Vanguard Wines that handle us in Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. So, uh, restaurants more so than retail, but but sure. both. Um, uh, but definitely, uh, it's not widely found because we just, we just simply don't make a lot. Um,
0: I mean, particularly with wines where it is limited production, I think that that's where online sales really do help out a lot. Because certainly. I mean, the, the big box—you know—we're starting to see a lot more of that happening. In all markets where the uh, the bottle shops are, you don't see small bottle shops anymore. No, they've been unfortunately the pressures are on them to total compete wine. With. I that's, mean, you can't go into total wine. Tough. You wouldn't have enough for one bottle for each location. That's right. <laughs> and my, and yeah.
1: brands like mine, not only are we not available in total wine because they don't want us, but we also don't we don't want them. I mean, it's sure. not a good fit uh, for us. So They'd we be buried we, underneath. We'll be in, we want to be in small hand sell curated retail environments, and uh, we want to be in 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 you know in in fine dining chef-driven, you know, uh, local-focused restaurants. And so you you will find us in places in, in, in a lot of major cities in those kinds of environments, and you and can always, you know, always get it directly from us or come and visit. So
0: Yeah, yeah visit. Keep your eyes peeled for it. Definitely in, the, in some of your favorite restaurants and definitely get some of that Pinot Blanc yeah. because it's, it's delicious. Yeah, fact, I think I'm going to walk back over to to your bottle here in a moment and we for a taster again so, yeah uh well drew again thanks so much i mean we, we could do this for hours man because i've always a lot found of you a very fascinating person and definitely passionate about what you do and, and you're in one of my favorite uh areas of the country and, and making some of my favorite wines so very good I appreciate you coming on the well, show and, and chatting wine with us wonderful thanks for having me on ed cheers all right thanks